0: Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and I'm here to bring you a Thanksgiving Week episode, which is a continuation of tract 28 in Tracts for the Times. This tract is a continuation of tract 27 and is titled The History of Popish Transubstantiation. As we've talked about before in relation to this tract, It's a good reminder that even the high churchmen and Oxford movement participants were reactionary and hostile to Roman Catholicism. I think it's important to revisit these tracts as a way of understanding the high churchmen and tractarian projects, but it's also important to remember that these are stages in a development that ultimately gave way to the more irenic Anglo-Catholic movement in the 20th century. One could look to E. L. Maskell's chapters 9 through 11 in Christ, the Christian, and the Church, where he gives an extensive teaching on the Eucharist, as an example of a marked shift in tone and style of engagement with Roman teaching on the subject. However, as I mentioned, today's tract is part of the unfolding of Anglican identity, which eventually brought us to where we are today. So it's important that we review. So here it is. Tract 28, chapter 6 and 7, The History of Popish Transubstantiation. Chapter 6. Romish Objections Considered as Drawn from the Writings of the Fathers. Let us see what props these new builders pretend to borrow from antiquity to uphold their castle in the air transubstantiation. They use, indeed, to scrape together many testimonies of the fathers of the First and Middle Age, whereby they would fain prove that those fathers believed and taught the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the natural body and blood of Christ, just as the Roman church at this day doth teach and believe. We will therefore briefly examine them, that it may yet more fully appear that antiquity and all the fathers did not in the least favor the new tenet of transubstantiation, But that that doctrine, which I have set down in the beginning of this book, was constantly owned and preserved in the Church of Christ. Now almost all that they produce out of the fathers will be conveniently reduced to certain heads, that we may not be too tedious in answering each testimony by itself. 1. To the first head belong those that call the Eucharist the body and blood of Christ. But I answer, those fathers explain themselves in many places and interpret those their expressions in such a manner, that they must be understood in a mystic and spiritual sense, and that sacraments usually take the name of those things they represent, because of that resemblance which they have with them, not by the reality of the thing, but by the signification of the mystery, as we have been shown before out of St. Austin and others. For nobody can deny but that the things that are seen are signs and figures, and those that are not seen the body and blood of Christ. And that therefore the nature of this mystery is such that when we receive the bread and wine, we also together with them receive at the same time the body and blood of Christ, which in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist are as truly given as they are represented. Hence came into the church this manner of speaking, the consecrated bread is Christ's body. Number 2. We put in the second rank those places that say that the bishops and priests make the body of Christ with the sacred words of their mouth, as St. Hiram speaks in the epistle to Halidorus Hel- and St. Ambrose and others. To this I say, at the prayer and the blessing of the priest, the common bread is made sacramental bread, which, when broken and eaten, is the communion of the body of Christ, and therefore may well be called so sacramentally. For the bread, as I have often said before, doth not only represent the body of our Lord, but also being received, we are made truly partakers of that precious body. For so saith Saint Hiram. The body and blood of Christ is made at the prayer of the priest. That is, the element is so qualified that being received, it becomes the communion of the body and blood of Christ, which it could not without the preceding prayers. The Greeks call this to prepare and to consecrate the body of the Lord, as St. Chrysostom saith well, These are not the works of man's power, but still the operation of him, who made them in the Last Supper, as for us, we are only ministers, but he is that sanctifies and changeth them. In the third place, to what is brought out of the fathers concerning the conversion, change, transmutation, transfiguration, and trans of the bread and wine in the Eucharist, wherein the papists do greatly glory, boasting of the consent of antiquity with them, I answer that there is in no such consequence Transubstantiation being another species of change, the enumeration was not full, for it doth not follow that because there is a conversion, a transmutation, a trans there should also be a transubstantiation, which the fathers never so much as mentioned. For because this is a sacrament, the change must be understood to be sacramental also, whereby common bread and wine become the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, which could not be. Did not the substance of the bread and wine remain? For a sacrament consisteth of two parts, an earthly and a heavenly. And so because ordinary bread is changed by consecration into a bread which is no more of common use, but appointed by divine institution to be a sacramental sign, whereby is represented the body of Christ, in whom dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and being thereby dignified, having great excellency superadded, and so made what it was not before. It is therefore said by some of the fathers to be changed, to be made another thing. And truly, that change is great and supernatural, but yet not substantial, not of a substance which substantially ceaseth to be into another substance which substantially beginneth to be, but it is a change of state and condition, which alters not the natural properties of the element. This is also confirmed by Scripture— which usually describes and represents the conversion of men and the supernatural change of things as though it were not as though it were natural, though it be not so. So those that are renewed by the Word and Spirit and faith of Christ are said to be regenerated, converted, and transformed, to put off the old man and put on the new man, and to be new creatures. but they are not said to become another substance, to be transubstantiated, for men thus converted are still the same human body and the same rational soul as before, though in a far better state and condition, as every Christian will acknowledge. Nay, the fathers themselves use those words—transmutation, transformation, transelementation—upon other occasions when they speak of things whose substance is neither lost nor changed. Number four. To the fourth head I refer what the fathers say of our touching and seeing the body of Christ and drinking his blood in the sacrament. And thereto I answer that we deny not, but that some things, emphatical and even hyperbolical, have been said of the sacrament by Chrysostom and some others, and that those things may easy lead unwary men into error. That was the ancient father's care, as it is ours still, to instruct the people not to look barely on the outward elements, but in them to eye with their minds the body and blood of Christ, and with their hearts lift up to feed on that heavenly meat. For all the benefit of a sacrament is lost if we look no further than the elements. Hence it is that these holy men, the better to teach this lesson to their hearers, and move their hearts more efficaciously, spake of the signs as if they had been the things signified, and like orators, said many things which will not bear a literal sense, nor a strict examine. Such is this of an uncertain author under the name of St. Cyprian, quote, We are close to the cross, we suck the blood, and we put our tongues in the very wounds of our Redeemer, so that both outwardly and inwardly we are made red thereby. Quote. Such is that of St. Chrysostom, quote, in the sacrament, the blood is drawn out of the sight of Christ. The tongue is made bloody with that wonderful blood. End quote. Again, quote, Thou seest thy Lord sacrificed, and the crowding multitude round about sprinkled with his blood. He that sits above with the Father is at the same time in our hands. Thou doth see and touch and eat him, for I do not show thee either angels or archangels, but the Lord himself, close quote. Again, quote, he incorporates us with himself, as if we were but the same thing. He makes us his body indeed, and suffers us not only to see, but even to touch, to eat him, and to put our teeth in his flesh, so that by the food which he gives us, we become his flesh, end quote. Such is that of St. Austin, quote, let us give thanks not only that we are made Christians, but also made Christ, end quote. Lastly, such is that of Leo, quote, In the mystical distribution it is given us to be made his flesh, end quote. Certainly, if any man would wrangle and take advantage of these, he might thereby maintain as well that we are tra- transubstantiated into Christ and Christ's flesh into the bread, as that the bread and wine are transubstantiated into his body and blood. But protestants who scorn to play the sophisters interpret these and the like passages of the fathers with candour and ingenuity, as it is most fitting they should. For the expressions of preachers which have often something of a paradox must not be taken according to that harsher sound wherewith they at first strike the auditor's ears. The fathers spake not only not of any transubstantiated bread, but of the mystical and consecrated, when they used those sorts of expressions and that for these reasons. Number one, that they might extol and amplify the dignity of this mystery, which all true Christians acknowledge to be very great and peerless. Number two, that communicants might not rest in the outward elements, but seriously consider the thing they represented, whereof they are most certainly made partakers if they be worthy receivers. Number three, and lastly, that they might approach so great a mystery with the more zeal, reverence, and devotion and that those hyperbolic expressions are thus to be understood. The fathers teach clearly enough when they last come to interpret them. Number five, lastly, being the same holy fathers who, as in the manner is to discourse of sacraments, speak sometimes of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper as if they were the very body and blood of Christ, do also very often call them types, elements, signs, the figure of the body and blood of Christ. From hence it appears most manifestly that they were of the Protestants and not of the Papists' opinion. For we can, without prejudice to what we believe of the sacrament, use those former expressions which the Papists believe do most favor them, if they be understood as they ought to be sacramentally. But the latter none can use, but he must thereby overthrow the groundless doctrine of transubstantiation. These two, the bread is transubstantiated into the body, and the bread is also the type, the sign, the figure of the body of Christ, being wholly inconsistent. For it is impossible that a thing that loseth its being should yet be the sign and representation of another, neither can any thing be the type and sign of itself. But if without admitting of a sacramental sense the words be used too rigorously, nothing but this will follow that the bread and wine are really and properly the very body and blood of Christ, which they themselves disown, that hold transubstantiation. Therefore in this change it is not a newness of substance, but of use and virtue that is produced, which yet the fathers acknowledged with us to be wonderful, supernatural, and proper only to God's omnipotency. For that earthly and corruptible meat cannot become to us a spiritual and heavenly, the communion of the body and blood of Christ, without God's especial power and operation. And whereas it is far above philosophy and human reason that Christ, from heaven, where alone he is locally, should reach down to us the divine virtue of his flesh, so that we are made one body with him, therefore it is as necessary as it is reasonable that the Father should tell us that we ought with singleness of heart to believe the Son of God, where he saith, this is my body, and that we ought not to measure this high and holy mystery by our narrow conceptions or by the course of nature. For it is more acceptable to God with an humble simplicity of faith to reverence and embrace the words of Christ than to wrest them violently to a strange and improper sense, and with curiosity, presumption, to determine that it, what exceeds the capacity of men and angels." Chapter 7 History of the Rise of the Romish Doctrine of Transubstantiation We have proved it before that the leprosy of transubstantiation did not begin to spread over the body of the Church in a thousand years after Christ. But at last, the thousand years being expired and Satan loosed out of his prison to go and deceive the nations and compass the camp of the saints about, then to the great damage of Christian peace and religion, they began here and there to dispute against the clear, constant, and universal consent of the fathers, and to maintain the new-started opinion. It is known to them that understood history what manner of times were there then, and what were those bishops who then governed the Church of Rome? Sylvester II, John the Nineteenth and Twentieth, Sergius the Fourth, Benedictus the John the Benedict the Ninth, Sylvester the Gregory the Sixth, Damasus the Second, Leo the Ninth, Nicholas the Second, Gregory the Sixth, or Hildebrand, who tore to pieces the church of Rome with grievous schisms, cruel wars, and great slaughters. For the Roman pontificate was come to that pass, that good men being put by, they whose life and doctrine were pious being oppressed, none could obtain that dignity, but they that could bribe best and were most ambitious. In that unhappy age, the learned were at odds about the presence of the body of Christ in the sacrament, some defending the ancient doctrine of the church, and some the new-sprung-up opinion. Fulbert, bishop of Chartres, AD 10.10, was tutor to Berengarius, whom we shall soon have occasion to speak of, and his doctrine was altogether conformable to that of the primitive church, as appears clearly out of his epistle to Adiodatus, wherein he teacheth, quote, that the mystery of faith in the Eucharist is not to be looked on with our bodily eyes, but with the eyes of our mind. For what appears outwardly, bread and wine, is made inwardly the body and blood of Christ, not that which is tasted with the mouth, but that which is relished by the heart's affection. Therefore, saith he, prepare the palate of thy faith, open the throat of thy hope, and enlarge the bowels of thy charity, and take that bread of life which is the food of the inward man. Again, quote, the perception of a divine taste proceeds from the faith of the inward man, whilst by receiving the saving sacrament Christ is received into the soul. Quote. All this is against those who teach in too gross a manner that Christ, in this mystery, enters carnally the mouth and stomach of the receivers. Fulbert was followed by Berengarius, his scholar, archdeacon of Angers in France, a man of great worth by the holiness both of his life and doctrine. Berengarius stood up valiantly in defense of that doctrine, which 170 years before was delivered out of God's word and the Holy Fathers in France by Bertram and John Aragina, and by others elsewhere, against those who taught that in the Eucharist neither bread nor wine remained after the consecration. Yet he did not either believe or teach as many falsely and shamelessly have imputed to him that nothing more is received in the Lord's Supper but bare signs only, or mere bread and wine. But he believed, and openly professed, as St. Austin and other faithful doctors of the Church had taught out of God's Word, that in this mystery the souls of the faithful are truly fed by the true body and true blood of Christ to life eternal. Nevertheless, it was neither his mind nor his doctrine that the substance of the bread and wine is reduced to nothing or changed into the substance of the natural body of Christ, or, as some then would have had the church believe, that Christ himself comes down carnally from heaven. Entire books he wrote upon this subject, but they have been wholly suppressed by his enemies, and now are not to be found. Yet what we have of him, in his greatest enemy, Lanfranc, I here set down. Quote, By the consecration at the altar, the bread and wine are made a sacrament of religion, not to cease to be what they were, but changed into something else, and to become what they were not. End quote. Agreeable to what St. Ambrose had taught. Again, quote, there are two parts in the sacrifice of the Church, this is according to St. Irenaeus, the visible sacrament and the invisible thing of the sacrament, that is, the body of Christ. Again, quote, the bread and wine which are consecrated remain in their substance having a resemblance with that whereof they are a sacrament, for else they could not be a sacrament. Lastly, quote, Sacraments are visible signs of divine things, but in them the invisible things are honored, end quote. All this agrees well with St. Austin and other fathers above cited. He did not therefore by this doctrine exclude the body of Christ from the sacrament, but in its right administration he joined together the things signified with the sacred sign, and taught that the body of Christ was not eaten with the mouth in a carnal way, but with the mind and soul and spirit. Neither did Berengarius alone maintain this orthodox and ancient doctrine. For Sigibert, William of Malmesbury, Matthew Paris and Matthew of Westminster make it certain that almost all the French, Italians, and English of those times were of the same opinion, and that many things were said, writ, and disputed in its defense by many men, amongst whom was Bruno, the bishop of the same church of Angers, Now this greatly displeaseth the papal faction, who took great care that those men's writings should not be delivered to posterity, and do now write that the doctrine of Berengarius, owned by the fathers and maintained by many famous nations, skullt only in some dark corner or other. The first pope who opposed himself to Berengarius was Leo the Ninth, a plain man indeed, but too much led by Humbert and Hildebrand. For as soon as he was desired, He pronounced sentence of excommunication against Berengarius absent and unheard, and not long after he called a council of Versailles, wherein John Aragina and Berengarius were condemned upon this account that they should say that the bread and wine in the Eucharist are only bare signs, which was far from their thoughts, and further yet from their belief. This roaring, therefore, of the lion frightened not Berengarius. Nay, the Gallican churches did also oppose the Pope and and his Synod of Versailles, and defended Berengarius the oppressed truth. To Leo succeeded Pope Victor II, who, seeing Berengarius could not be cast down and crushed by the fulminations of his predecessor, sent his legate to Hildebrand into France, and called another council of Tours where Baron Garius, being cited, did freely appear, and whence he was freely dismissed, after he had given it under his hand, that the bread and wine and the sacrifice of the church are not shadows and empty figures, but and that he held none other but the common doctrine of the church concerning the sacrament. For he did not alter his judgment, as modern, modern papists give out, but he persisted to teach and maintain the same doctrine as before, as Lanfranc complains of him. Yet his enemies would not rest satisfied with this, but they urged Pope Nicholas II, who, within a few months that Stephen X sate, succeeded Victor, without the Emperor’s consent to call a new council at Rome against Berengarius. For that sensual manner of presence by them devised to the great dishonor of Christ being rejected by Berengarius, and he teaching as he did before that the body of Christ was not present in such a sort, as that it might be at pleasure brought in and out, taken into the stomach, cast on the ground, trod under foot, and bit or undevoured by any beasts, they falsely charged him, as if he had denied that it is present at all. And hundred and thirteen bishops came to the council to obey the Pope's mandate. Berengarius came also. Quote, and, as Sagonius and Leo Ostiensis say, when none present could withstand him, they sent for one Alber- Albericus, a monk of Mount Cassin, made cardinal by Pope Stephen. End quote. Who, having asked seven days' time to answer in writing, brought at last his scroll against Berengarius. The reasons and arguments used therein to convince his antagonist are not now extant, but whatever they were, Baron Garius was commanded presently without any delay to recant in that form prescribed and appointed by Cardinal Humbert, which was thus, I, Berengarius assent to the Holy Roman and Apostolic See, and with my heart and mouth do profess that I hold that faith concerning the sacrament of the Lord's table, which our Lord and Venerable Pope Nicholas and this sacred council have determined and imposed upon me by their Evangelic and Apostolic authority, to wit, that the bread and wine which are set on the altar are not, after the consecration, only a sacrament sign and figure, but also the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, it is well enough, but what follows is too horrid and is disowned by the papists themselves, and that they, the body and blood, are touched and broken with the hands of the priests, and ground with the teeth of the faithful, not sacramentally only, but in truth and sensibility." Quote. This is the prescript of the recantation imposed on Berengarius and by him at first rejected, but by imprisonment and threats and fear of being put to death, at last extorted from him. This form of recantation is to be found entire in Lanfranc, Algaris and Gratian. Yet the glosser on Gratian, John Simica, marks it with this note, quote, "Except you understand well the words of Berengarius, and he should have rather have said of Pope Nicholas and Cardinal Humbertus, quote, "you shall not fall into a greater heresy than his was, for he exceeded the truth and spake hyperbolically." Berengarius, being accused, overshot himself in his justification. But the excess of his words should be ascribed to those who prescribed and forced them upon him. Yet in all this we hear nothing of transubstantiation. Berengarius at last escaped out of this danger, and conscious to himself of having denied the truth, took heart again and refuted in writing his own impious and absurd recantation and said, quote, that by force it was extorted from him by the Church of Malignants, the Council of Vanity, end quote. Lanfranc at that time heard of a monastery in France, afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, and answered him. And though it is not to be doubted but that Berengarius and those of his party writ and replied again and again, yet so well did their adversaries look to it, that nothing of theirs remains save some citations in Lanfranc but it were to be wished that we had now the entire works of Berengarius, who was a learned man and a constant follower of antiquity. For out of him we might know with more certainty how things went than we can out of what his professed enemies have said. This sacramental debate ceased a while because of the tumults of war in Apulia and elsewhere by Pope Nicholas II, but it began again as soon as Hildebrand called Gregory VII came to the papal chair, for Berengarius was cited again to a new council at Rome, quote, where some of, some being of one opinion and some another, end quote, as it is in the acts of that council writ by those of the pope's faction, his cause could not be so entirely oppressed, but that some bishops were still found to uphold it. Nay, the ringleader himself, Hildebrand, is said to have doubted, quote, whether what we receive at the Lord's table be indeed the body of Christ by a substantial conversion, end quote. But three months space, having been granted to Berengarius and a fast appointed to, the cardinals, quote, that God would show by some sign from heaven, which he yet did not, who was in the right, the Pope or Berengarius, concerning the body of our Lord, end quote. At last the business was decided without any oracle from above and a new form of retraction imposed on Berengarius, whereby he was henceforth forward to confess, under pain of the Pope's high displeasure, quote, that the mystic bread, first made magical and enchanting by Hildebrand, is substantially turned into the true and proper flesh of Christ, end quote, which whether he ever did is not certain. For though Malmesbury tells us, quote, that he died in that Roman faith, end quote, yet there there are ancienter than he who say, quote, that he never was converted from his first opinion, end quote. And some relate, quote, that after this last condemnation, having given over his studies and given to the poor all he had, he wrought with his own hands for his living, end quote. Other things related of him by some slaves of the Roman Sea deserves no credit. These things happened in the year 1079, and soon after Berengarius died. Berengarius, being dead, the orthodox and ancient doctrine of the Lord's Supper which he maintained did not die with him, for it was still constantly retained by St. Bernard, abbot of Clairvaux, who lived about the beginning of the 12th century. In his discourse on the Lord's Supper, he joins together the outward form of the sacrament and the spiritual efficacy of it as the shell and the kernel, the sacred sign and the thing signified the one he takes out of the words of, inst- of the institution, and the other out of Christ's sermon in the sixth of St. John. And in the same place, explaining that sacraments are not things absolute in themselves, without any relation, but mysteries wherein by the gift of a visible sign, an invisible and divine grace with its body and blood of Christ is given, he saith, quote, that the visible sign is as a ring, which is given not for itself or absolutely, but to invest and give possession of an estate made over to one. End quote. Now, as no man can fancy that the ring is substantially changed into the inheritance, whether lands or houses, none also can say with truth or without absurdity that the bread and wine are substantially changed into the body and blood of Christ. But in his sermon on purification, which none doubts to be his, he speaks yet more plainly. Quote, the body of Christ and the sacrament is the food of the soul, not of the belly. Therefore we eat him not corporally, but in the manner that Christ is meat, in the same manner we understand that he is eaten. End quote. Also in his sermon on Saint Martin, which undoubtedly is his also, quote, to this day the same flesh is given to us, but spiritually, therefore not corporally. End quote. For the truth of things spiritually present is certain also. The thirteenth century now follows, wherein, the world growing both older and worse, a great deal of trouble and confusion there was about religion, so that now there remained nothing but to confirm the new tenet of transubstantiation and impose it so peremptorily on the Christian world that none might dare so much as to hiss against it. This Pope Innocent the third bravely performed. He, succeeding Celestine III, at thirty years of age and marching stoutly in the footsteps of Hildebrand, called a council at Rome in St. John Lateran, and was the first that ever presumed to make the new devised doctrine of transubstantiation an article of faith necessary to salvation, and that by his own mere authority. In the 15th century, the Council of Constance, which, by a sacrilegious attempt, took away the sacramental cup from the people and from the priests when they do not officiate, did wrongly condemn Wycliffe, who was already dead, because, amongst other things, he taught with the ancients, quote, that the substance of the bread and wine remains materially in the sacrament of the altar, and that in the same sacrament no accidents of bread and wine remain without a substance, end quote, which two assertions are most true. By these, any considering person may easily see that transubstantiation is a mere novelty, nor warranted either by scripture or antiquity, invented about the middle of the twelfth century out of some misunderstood sayings of some of the fathers, confirmed by no ecclesiastical or papal decree before the year 1215, afterwards received only here and there in the Roman Church, debated in the schools by many disputes, liable to many very bad consequences, Rejected, for there was never those wanting that opposed it, by many great and pious men until it was maintained in the sacrilegious Council of Constance, and at last, in the year fifteen fifty one, confirmed in the Council of Trent by a few Latin bishops, slaves to the Roman see, imposed upon all under pain of an anathema to be feared by none, and so spread too far by the tyrannical and most unjust command of the Pope, so that we have no reason to embrace it until it shall be demonstrated that except the substance of the bread be changed into the very body of Christ, his words cannot possibly be true, nor his body present, which will never be done. This concludes our reading for the day, track 28. If you like what we're doing here at The Sacramentalist, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and share us with your friends. You can also email us with feedback or show ideas at the sacramentalists at gmail.com. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be with you and remain with you